Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about The Apartment, mm. which we saw last night at an almost completely packed out electric cinema. So what we were talking about with them showing old movies, classics, good choices to bring people in mm. seems to be working. It's also, I mean, they're showing The Elephant Man on Sunday and I look for tickets for that. That's almost completely gone. Yes. So um, it seems to be working for them, which is yes. good. It was great to see it with a, with a really packed out, excited audience. The it was a got, sold out screening. The film got good laughs. Yes. I think the audience was with it, you know, every step of the way. I did, I did feel like applauding at the end, and nobody did. I did wonder whether people would. I'd never seen it before. Oh. And Billy Wilder is one of these directors who it constantly feels like I need to know better. I mean, I have mm. seen a few of his films by this point. I've seen Sunset Boulevard. We saw Fedora together for the podcast. Yes. I've seen Double Indemnity. Again, we saw that for the podcast. Yes, um, with Fred McMurray again. Must be one or two others. But um, this, you know, he's made a lot of films that I haven't seen and that are considered classics, and this yes. is one of them. yes. Um, I did come out feeling a little bit sort of it's, it's weird the whole film I enjoyed the mm. whole way through I liked how it looked I liked the play between the characters I liked the script all of it it's really nice and then I came out fe- feeling why am I why, why am I feeling a bit bereft I didn't really get it it might have partly been that because we didn't get the sofa seats <laughs> at the electric <laughs> Yeah. I did try. Yeah, you did try. I'm not blaming you. Um, but, you know, I love those seats and they're really nice and comfortable. And the reason I like it is not just because they are good, but it's also because the regular seats make my ass fall so deeply asleep. Mm. I feel oh, so uncomfortable. I may have had something to do with it. Mm. And I did put on Facebook later, I just put the apartment is too long. And I did kind of want to try and wind people up a bit with that because I knew that people would come out the woodwork telling me I was wrong. And indeed they did. Yes. Um, and I said, you know, you guys are just hacks. <laughs> um, but I'm not, I don't think I'm entirely wrong. I did think it was a little bit long. And I do think that there's an element, the two elements of comedy and drama don't quite play, don't quite balance well. Oh, I think they do. Um, but go on. I think they do, and I think almost like the opposite of you, really. Because I think, what would I, what would you cut out? I wouldn't cut anything out. Everything is is necessary. And unlike Belfast, which we've just talked about earlier, I think this is one of those films that gets richer the more you think about it, really. You know, so kind of after you left, I something that I hadn't thought about because this is one of those films that I've seen on television as a child, right? And I hadn't seen it since. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, what you remember is Jack Lemon, yeah, kind of being sweet and put upon, right? And uh, Shirley MacLaine being kooky and attractive. Mm. Though she's not too kooky in this, actually. Um, but thinking about it, what I thought, this is a really scathing critique of America, you mm. know, of, of American corporate culture, you know, of relations like, you know, if you think it's 1960, it's the US at its prime, right, where, you know, the work hard ethic, mm. if you work hard, you'll be a success and all that. And this shows the opposite. It's who you know, who you butter up, like, yeah, kind mm. of how you allow yourself to get used that kind of makes you run up the greasy pole. And everybody's lying, cheating, using, right? Except our protagonists, right? Yeah. Uh, and and particularly the Shirley MacLaine character, who's the, re- the only one who's really like, 
innocent. Yeah, she is kind of completely in love. Yeah, mm. uh, and does things because she's in love, right? I think generally speaking, the women are seen as innocents. I think actually all the this thing about takers versus those who get took, and all the takers are the executive men. They are, you know, um, but not. But some of the women. Yeah, you get a sense that that switchboard blonde, right, mm. is also kind of out for what she can get. A little bit of fun and a drink and, mm. you know, kind of maybe a purse from Bergdorf's. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, so, okay. so it's not all of the women who are... I mean, they are all put upon. And actually, one of the things that you see very clearly is like the gender, di- yeah, the gender differences, the, the opportunities women have and the roles that you know, they're allowed to play. But that doesn't make them all innocent either. Well, let's briefly say what it's about, because yeah. I, in fact, didn't know what it was about. Ah. You know, I knew it was about an apartment, but I didn't know what happened in it. Mm. Um, so Jack Lemon works at this corporate building. It's, you know, he, in the long office that we see, goes on for miles and miles and miles of just identical just desks and typewriters and so on. And he has an apartment in New York, but he doesn't get to sleep in it all the time, mm. because it turns out that he's, Lending it out, he's not even renting it out. I mm. think he's lending it out to these executives who work above him to use as a pied à terre for their sans cassettes, mm. as the French would say. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that the film is so wonderful at is also showing you how that developed because it wasn't that Jack Lemmon decided to let his apartment so that executives could use it as a place to fuck in between five and seven. I mean, you know, one guy needed to change his clothes to go to a banquet and said, oh, well, use my apartment. And before you know it, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of all these executives were now using his apartment, right? Yeah. Uh, and indeed, it's not just between five and seven, right? This keeps him out of the apartment when he needs to be using it, when yeah. he needs to sleep. Oh. And he and he's constantly, has a, he has a book of appointments. He's moving things around. Quite a funny scene early on where someone's, you know, whatever. He, he has a cold, so I need the apartment for tonight. Yeah. So he has to move a date. Then he has to get someone else to move a date and someone else to move a date. Um, and it seems like there's quite a lot of people then. What we actually learn then is that it's just these four executives but yes. they he's very put upon by them yes um and there is this talk about fred mcmurray runs the company and when he learns of this he wants in on it mm. you know and then it becomes talk of well there's promotion involved if you know if you mm. scratch my back and so on i'll scratch yours um and jack lemon also is interested in the elevator girl played by Sheldon McLean. Yes. Um, Miss Cuba. And I, I'm saying interested in, like, it's not as senior as the guys are, you know. He, he likes her, right? He mm. has, wants to find a human connection. And that's, yes. I think, part of the thing, part of the worry about corporate culture there is in this film, I was thinking about the same thing, is that it's alienating. It's not quite depersonalising, but there's definitely a focus on what people's roles are. The elevator girl, the executives, the middle management. People are kind of labelled, you know, yes. the, the switchboard girls. And, and they're so. all kind of anonymous. You see this row upon row upon row Absolutely. of people doing the same job. And there's a big difference drawn between the architecture of the office and the architecture of the home, yes. which is kind of, you know, the, the office is regimented, regulated, it stretches off into the distance, everyone's the same. Mm. And the apartment is cluttered and not quite small. I mean, it's one of those things where it's a New York apartment, but still it's kind of big. It's quite small. Um, but it's kind of cluttered and a little bit cramped and homely. I mean, and so You on. see one bedroom, a tiny, teeny, tiny kitchen and a living room yeah. that's not that big. I mean, you know, and actually one of the things that I think this is also a critique of American culture is because you have this middle-class executive, university-educated accountant, you know, and a doctor... 
you know, who's his next door neighbor, living in this super grungy apartment. Mm. And actually, you see the grunge, you see the walls, mm. yeah, mm. and yeah, it's kind of it's where you would expect poor people to live in, right? Like, yeah. you know, if that were like Montreal, I would expect that's you know an apartment for poor people. Obviously, the location is a prime location, so, yeah. yeah. But nonetheless, yeah, these are like uh, people who should be having a middle class, uh, upper middle class life and are living in these tiny, grungy apartments, which is in itself, I think, a kind of a critique of, you know, American, uh, you know, what America uh, uh, advertised to the world as its mm. own lifestyle. The film made me think about Shop Around the Corner. Ah, how unusual. Because it occurred to me that in Shop Around the Corner, Lubitsch, your favourite. You yes. Know, um, we hardly see anybody's dwelling. I think maybe we see the bosses one point for Christmas no, dinner. No, you don't. You see Miss, uh, the Margaret Sullivan's character's house. Right. Yeah, when she's ill and James Stewart goes to visit her. Right, well, that's it. It's basically, it's all in the shop and the shop is a community. And in here, there is no community at work, mm. right? You know, the, there is none of that. Whereas, whereas the home actually is. There's yeah. a formal community there. There's particularly with the next door neighbours. Yes. I mean, um, here there are re- relations of exchange and use that you see in the apartment. Yeah. But not a community the way that you see in shop around the corner. Yeah. And the executives who use the apartment aren't a community. They're a cabal, mm. right? And, you know, I talked about the difference between um, the takers and those who get took, as the film puts it, as Sean McLean's character puts it. And that's one... Distinction, but I think the more interesting distinction is between the takers and the menches. The next door neighbours always saying, "Be a mensch," mm. and being a mensch, you know, a mensch means a good human, a caring human, that kind of thing. I thought they mistranslated in the film because I always thought, you know, they they translate mensch as human, whereas I always translate mensch, you know, as a good or lovely person, yeah, not just a a person or a human, but a good one. <laughs> yeah, no, I. I I know what you mean. It's not quite. How, it's not how it's phrased in the film when they explain it in English. Mm. I also associate it with, with with saying that men are called men are called menches, and I don't think I've ever heard a woman called a mensch. Oh. Um, not that that comes up in the film exactly, but uh, but uh, it's, I'm using the film's kind of version of yeah, yeah, what yeah. it's saying. A mensch is right, and basically this is Jack Lemmon's choice in the film: is he going to be a taker or is he going to be a mensch? And that's the choice that he rejects. Mm. Where he that's the, that's the choice that he makes at the end when um, he's been given. This office, he moves up the corporate uh, hierarchy, and eventually he's been offered this office next to um, this guy Fred McMurray, who runs the company. Mm. You know, in this kind of it's a little bit of a closet, but I guess it's an office next to the boss. And the thing is, I, I've I had your spare key, but I threw it away because I was going to get caught. I need your key, mm. and this is the choice that he makes: is do I give him the key to the apartment again? Do I cement this promotion? Do I? climb the corporate ladder, do I become one of the, or not maybe become one of the taker class because he would still be getting used by them, but do I collaborate with the taker class? And he chooses not to. He rejects it. He gives him his key to his office back, or the key to the executive washroom, rather. That's right. Um, and he, he embraces becoming a mensch. Well, he embraces her. I mean, he's doing it for her. But that's what proves it, right? Like, that, that I think the choice is the choice that's made, and then that's that's what then shows her when she discovers this, because she's having the affair with Freddie Murray. She, she loves him. And then when he explains that this is what uh, Jack Lemmon did, that's when she realises this is the man I love. Mm. Yeah. So that's what proves it to her. Um, well, I think I think it's great. I think it's great. It's really really nicely worked through, and it's very it's very complex and very nice. The thing that I felt was unbalanced was the film is structured around this suicide attempt. 
uh, of Shirley MacLaine's when she thinks that she's lost Fred McMurray because he's gone back to his wife and family. It's not because he's gone back to his wife and family. It's because he's treated her like a hooker. Yes. She's, well, well he's she's he also goes back, doesn't he? Well, yes, but but yes. her thing is, I'm in love with this guy, and I've made all these excuses for him and whatever, and he's just treated me like a hooker. That's right. Right? That's right. The you know, and actually, bill. a cheap hooker. Yeah, because, you know, kind of, they've had sex so often, and he's given her £100, which really, she's a bargain. If that's if that's the way he thinks of her, yes. then, you know, not only, a, a cheap hooker. And that's what destroys her. So she has this. She has this suicide attempt. She takes loads and loads of pills, and obviously they they discover her. They're able to save her, and then there's this time spent in the apartment recuperating when she develops a relationship and a bond with Jack Lemmon. But then the film, I think, quite earnestly, but to me, it fails at this. Builds up towards a potential second suicide attempt, which is Jack Lemmon's. Mm. So structurally, it's the same. He thinks he's lost the girl. Because mm. she's gone back off from where he discovered, you know, I forget exactly what it was, but that he thinks he's lost her, right? Oh, so he'd done it before. Yeah, there's this thing about he's had a suicide attempt before, which he describes to her, mm. and there's all this talk quite separately, but it's there, about people try this more than once, you need to look after her. So you expected to put these two things together. Uh, his suicide attempt was with a gun, and we see this gun in his apartment while he's packing up, and mm. you know, there's a shot, he looks at it, right? He notices his gun, he puts it away, we notice it too. And then we get this gunshot when she's coming back to the apartment. Sounds like a gunshot. And ultimately we find actually he's um, opened a bottle of champagne. I thought that was clever. See, the thing is, I I can understand how it's trying to put all that together. But the reason I didn't buy it as... I didn't buy any tension in it. I didn't think... I didn't think at all. I mean, partly it's the genre. I didn't think there was possibility that he was going to try and kill himself. I just thought it's not... It's the genre. It's not going to happen. There'll be a happy ending. So maybe that's part of it. Part of it is that... He's chipper the whole way through. Even when he's telling the story about his suicide attempt, he's kind of, it's a little bit light-hearted. No, I mean, I think the thing about Jack Lemmon, which I think, you know, he's one of the great film actors of the 20th century, is that, you know, even when he's being funny, it has an undertow of sadness. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's a very sad story. He's talking about how he's such a schnook yeah, that he was going to commit suicide and instead he just kind of hit his leg with a gun, right? And he's trying to make it funny, right? But there's a kind of undertow of desperation or of sadness with the whole thing, yeah. I, I can th- see how you would see it there, and I definitely agree this is one of Jack Lemmon's strengths as an actor, but I didn't feel the film carried it off it. I, it felt too, too light-hearted a story. I didn't buy the drama of it, and I didn't buy it as a way to build attention. I did think it was, it was all a little bit half-hearted, all of that, which means that the ultimate... The, the tension that it's trying to build towards at the end didn't work for me at all. Well, I was very moved by it, and, and actually, surprisingly so. I, mean, I found it very moving, mm. because it has to be one of the darkest, most cynical comedies, really. Yeah, like, it's very mm. dark. <laughs> yeah, mm. and it's quite cynical. Well, I mean, I felt it had elements of noir. Yeah. You know, I mean, there is a certain kind of seedy, unbelly thing going on, and it does have this talk of suicide, and and the shots as well where he hangs around hiding in the shadows while people come in and out of his apartment because he shouldn't be seen there. You know that they they had a noirish feel that hiding they in the did. shadows. Well, also it speaks of a kind of a self-loathing, mm. yes, and a kind of a lack of self-esteem and a you know that uh, frantic desire to please that the powerless have. But all of that communicated to me, really. 
and you know you were talking earlier about the office you know and the saying like how small huh? but i think the film is so wonderful about how it creates this barrier between the people working in the open which seems infinite and anonymous and the relatively protected space of the office right like you know which all seem to have these amazing views of mm. the canyons of new york right and i thought that was particularly evident in the party like you know the difference between the inside and the outside of the office and how cleverly that was used that the office were like a bit of a protective space yeah, i remember mm. that moment where you know he comes into the office and he kicks the couple who are mm -hmm. like yeah uh you know but there's all this frantic activity happening on the outside right so i think yeah there are there are four or five different spaces in the film there's the inside of the office and the outside of the office at work yeah there's the lobby there's the nightclub and then there's the apartment and then outside on the street you yeah. know uh and it does all of that creates a kind of a noir Mm. you know feel like you know kind of the nightclub uh you know and being the last people you know kind of at the club before it closes uh hooks up with a criminal with the wife of a criminal who's in jail in cuba yeah all of it is really quite dark mm. yeah and and it and unlike lubitsch because you see i think lubitsch what i love about him is he's so into fun and pleasure and forgiveness yeah kind of people are complex and they make mistakes but you know they're basically good really whereas i think billy wilder's take on people is that they're all horrible <laughs> right i mean i think i think there is a thing about you know because billy wilder thought uh lubitsch was the greatest filmmaker ever and he had this sign on his desk yeah like how would lubitsch do it so right. when he was writing his screenplays it was always how would lubitsch do it and of course he could never do it like the way that lubitsch would do it because the Holocaust happened in between. Yeah, kind of, mm. you know, most of Lubitsch's films, yeah, were made like pre-Holocaust. Some of them, yeah, so the Nazis came in in 1933, he died in 1946 or mm -hmm. something like that, right? And obviously, like, uh, yeah, he grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in Berlin and was very familiar with all kinds of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. But there was a, a kind of a lightness and acceptance and so on that Lubitsch had that was impossible for Billy Wilder mm. because Billy Wilder, I think almost all his family was wiped out in concentration camps, right? Mm. So, yeah, and he was like, you know, the lucky one who happened to be in America. But I mean, he actually fled from Berlin to Paris, worked in Paris. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like he really fled the Nazis. And then on top of that was witness to the disasters because I think he was in Germany in the immediate, he, I, I'm not sure whether he was one of the people who, you know, liberated Germany and liberated the camps, but if he wasn't, he, he appeared shortly thereafter. So his whole view of humanity was tainted by mm. that. Well, well, tainted is the wrong word, was informed by that. And his films are very dark and very bleak and very cynical, you know, and yeah. you see that, I think, in the apartment, you know. Yes, um, and it, it, it seems... It, didn't he make three films in which uh, insurance was a kind of... I mean, Double Indemnity, well, Double is, Indemnity one. is one. And there's one after this as well where an insurance guy 
was a main character or something like that. I don't there know. Be, there's something quite cynical about the insurance world as well. It's the way well, it's kind of... insurance is a bit cynical as well because it's all about the odds. Yeah. Yes, it's not about morality. It's just about the odds. Yeah, and Dublin Indemnity certainly is about how you can play that. You know, yeah. that's not that's not how it's done here. But I think you know he, he could. The film could be about any business, mm. and it's about in, the insurance business. And there's something in there. Um, but you're right, like but he. His, the world in which his characters live is a, is a cynical one, or at least it's populated by cynical people. Yes. But he does find the two people in this world who aren't cynical, who are yes. looking for a human connection, and he and he lets them find it at the yes. end. Two vulnerable, weak people. Yeah, I mean, you know, she's a working class girl. He's like, uh, you know, an educated every guy. The the really good people are actually the doctor and his wife. Yeah. You know, uh, so they are genuinely good. The Shirley MacLaine character and the Jack Lemmon character are people who want to be good, but who are kind of weak-willed or schnooky. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and actually, that's what's so nice about the film, that, the, you know, they're kind of redeemed by meeting each other, by falling in love, yeah, mm. by caring for something that's not just themselves. And that's what, you know, separates them you know, both from the corporate culture that they're a part of, which is entirely cynical, and, you know, the neighbouring doctor and his wife who are just genuinely good people. Hmm. Yeah. They're kind of like in between. They're more like every pe- every person. <laughs> yeah. Which is what makes the film so great to me. Yeah. Um, and I like that. I mean, it made me think of Mad Men as well, because it's basically Mad Men is, is about this time in history, about mm. this place in the world, mm. and about men using women left, right and centre, all the women in their office, mm. you know. Um, and, you know, it's easy enough to do that today, mm. looking back and going, weren't they sexist? Mm. But uh, to do it at the time, in a world in which, as you were saying, this is like the height of American corporate culture. This mm. was America was winning and mm. this is what we should all be doing. They just won the war. They were really at the height of their powers and prosperity. And also an idea that people believed in. Yeah. You know, kind of the American way of life. And this shows the really dark side of it, or a very dark side of it. Yeah, at the time. Which yeah, and at the top. Yeah, because, I mean, it's one thing to show the dark side of it if you're making a gangster film, but this is about corporate America. Yeah, but, you know. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, this is about the good guys. Yeah. Except they're not. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Which, you know, it's one of the things that I film, the film does so well, really. And I think... The other thing that I find Billy Wilder so great at is really with the actors. I mean, Jack Lemmon is a great actor, but he's so inventive, right? Like, you know, he gets laughs out of props, uh, expressions. He doubles things, you know, so that at his most desperate, he's at his funniest, right? And then when he's trying to be funny and charming, he always evokes a kind of a desperation, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's I was just, really taken by Shirley MacLaine. Oh, I she's wonderful. I didn't think, I'm not sure that I've seen her in anything before, though I am familiar with her as a personality, as a person, mm. um, from Parkinson and things particularly. Uh, she was on, on Parkinson quite a few times. Um, I, I found out she's, she's really, really lovely, personable, such a likeable presence in this film. Mm. I understand everything that she thinks and everything yes. that she's doing and, and the way in which she's negotiating the world she lives in. I find her really emotionally open, transparent, yes. the word you'd like to use. Yes. Um, I, I loved her to bits. Oh, she was wonderful. She is. I mean, I think my view of her is coloured because I think in the last 20 years or more, you know, she has basically been playing this 
every character in the same way, right? So I don't know if you've ever seen Steel Magnolias. No. But she plays this crotchety, grouchy, unkind, kind of cynical, you know, person called Weezer. And it seems every character she's played after that is that kind of cynical, you know, mm. grouchy, yeah, you know, person who knows better than anybody else and is angry at the world kind of vibe, which is so the opposite of what she shows in this film. And mm. you forget, yeah, that, you know, there are other Shirley MacLaine's than this grouchy <laughs> old one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I suppose the film also slightly reminded me of Frank Capra. I mean, well, particularly thinking of It's a Wonderful Life and, you know, the badness of the guy at the top or whatever and the community of people who... No, no. no this is to me the opposite of Capra. Oh, no, I'm, I'm yeah. not saying it's like, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying that. But just, I think there's something about the way that the ideals of the American community built up out of bits and pieces, scraps of people from all over the place. Like the thing, particularly when the guy comes in, the brother-in-law... And he's just—he's this cab driver, and he's yes. violent and stuff. And it's—it's it's a bit of a threat, but he's also there to protect his sister-in-law. Yes. And you know, there's, there's something—I don't know—it's very vaguely put together thought, but that's kind of what I mean. No. Um, well, yeah, I yeah. That's... As opposed to Mister Potter, who's there using the apartments and all the women. Yes, um, I think what's lovely about the film *Inhuman* is what Jack Lemon and. Uh, uh, Shirley MacLaine bring which are there as written it's not that they bring something that isn't there though they add to it right because they're so personable and also kind of ordinary I mean it's difficult to think of Shirley MacLaine as ordinary because of course she's so she's got such an incredible body Mm. right but at the time she was seen as kind of ordinary yeah like with the round face she wasn't considered like a beauty right? right she was considered somebody very sexy and attractive and personable, but not like Elizabeth Taylor or Ava Gardner or mm. yeah, other stars of that period. You know, she was considered like a you know a female equivalent of every man, yeah, uh, but also with an extraordinary body. She was a dancer, and you see that. Yeah, you can see mm. why you know all the men would fall for her. Yeah, you know, she, you know, the way that she walks. Where there's this bit where she at the end, where she comes out of the elevator and she's wearing this kind of magnificent sweater, you know, with this huge lapel, and just the way that she walks, you know, she, mm. you know, she, she's very attractive. Though you forget, also, that Jack Lemmon, in his own way, was as well, you know. Um, well, you were saying before the film, like, he was never, he was never handsome, not like drop-dead handsome. Yes. But he's, it's like girl next door, boy next door sort of thing. Like That's they're, right. They're, they're the believable, likeable, Pretty-ish, pretty enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Um, anyway, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was a great film and also that it grows on you, right? So, for example, some of the images that you get, Fred McMurray with his family and his boys as he gets a phone call about his girlfriend's suicide, you know, and his complete lack of emotional involvement with mm. that, right? Like, you know, so there's this, you know... The home Christmas is the way that American Christmases should be. And yet, what we're being told is, this is a lie. There's a, you know, there's a, a, a woman at the end who just committed suicide at the other end of this phone. So, and the film is full of things like that, right? Like, and often, visually, there are images that speak an alienation. You know, like, mm. I mean, that whole set, 
So I thought it was I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to watch it a second time and to wonder whether I do still think it's too long. I mm. think, and that was an honest assessment, and I do wonder whether I still think there are things... It's not that I would cut anything, but I wonder whether I still think there are things that could be tighter, more efficiently expressed and developed mm. in the film. And I think part of it might be because some of the developments of the drama didn't really work for me. And so I kind of felt like it ended up being wasted time because mm. it, cause it ended up feeling empty, you know? So maybe there's that, but um, but I did really like it. I was very grateful uh, to the electric uh, for you know putting a 35 millimeter screening of it. I was so happy to see it in a place that was packed and to be responding it uh, to it with other people. Uh, you know, I thought it was it was marvelous. Yeah, and we you know we first time we went to the electric the other day. Your man sat next to you and chatted to you, and here today, people on either side we were having a bit of a chat with. It's actually mm. a feeling of community going on there. Yes. Which is nice. Yes. Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, thank you all very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye bye. <laughs>